Good evening, everyone. Uh, please open your Bibles with me to Luke 23. If you have your communion elements, too, can you raise your hand if you need a communion element? And we'll make sure we get you some. We're looking at Luke chapter 23 as we prepare our hearts for communion. In this passage in Luke, we have a powerful recording of the memory of Jesus' death. It's interesting when you think about certain deaths that have occurred in our own history, how we have a memory of them, a sense of them, even though we were not physically present at the time. I think of, for example, September 11th. I was not physically there, and yet we heard the testimonies, the vivid, powerful testimonies of those who were there, and it was as if we were there too. We incorporated it into our experience. You know, Luke in this gospel is giving us a powerful portrayal of the death of Jesus, and yet Luke wasn't there either. He went about, he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 2, and he sought out eyewitness testimonies. He heard from people that were physically present, that saw the happenings that surrounded the cross, and he wrote them down for us in this gospel so that we could receive from the gospel as well. One of those eyewitness testimonies is interesting. It's the Roman centurion who happened to be overseeing all of the events surrounding the crucifixion at the time. So I want to pick up and listen to his eyewitness testimony. This is Luke chapter 23, and we pick up at verse 44. It says, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts in all his acquaintances. And the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, as Luke is telling us this depiction of the crucifixion, he uses a couple of verbs for eyewitness testimony. He talks of people seeing they saw these events and watching they watch. So you see that actually in verse 47, 48, 49. There's the crowd who sees this and they're so overcome by what they've seen, even though they were just recently yelling crucify, they leave Golgotha beating their breasts. You see in verse 49 that his acquaintances are watching from a distance and then in verse 47, there's another eyewitness. It's this Roman centurion. And what's incredible in Luke's depiction in Matthew and Mark, 
is that he gives like the best overall statement about what has just happened, what he's just witnessed. How is that possible? And he's this Gentile army officer with no previous connection of Jesus. He doesn't have like a Jewish background. He's not steeped in the scriptures. And yet Luke is showing us in this gospel that he's actually the one standing around the cross that's really watching what's happening. He's seeing it. I want us to take a minute to just kind of put ourselves in his shoes and ask ourselves, what did he see that led him to make that statement? Well, first, I want to suggest that he saw cruelty and stupidity. You see, it's a routine task for a Roman soldier to see a crucifixion. They're involved in this all the time. Uh, The normal custom is a man's tried, he's convicted, he's condemned at court. It wasn't uncommon for them to see people coming out to the crucifixion to spectate. It was kind of like the Wild West in some ways. You went and that was a form of entertainment. But what was odd probably for him was to see the religious leaders and the political figures coming out, standing around a cross in front of a guilty man um, that they said was guilty and jeering at him and saying, oh, you saved others. Now save yourself. It's odd. You know, I was thinking back to Schindler's List, that movie that Steven Spielberg had directed and produced in the 90s. And it's a dark film. He presents it in black and white. He did this because the Holocaust itself was such a dark time in human history. He said that the Holocaust was life without light. For me, the symbol of life is color. That's why a film about the Holocaust has to be in black and white. And there's a scene that captures just how engrossed the darkness was during that time. You have these people that are in a cattle car and they're heading off to Auschwitz and they're looking through the cracks of the cattle car and they see these little children running alongside of the car, taunting them, singing, you're going to die, you're going to die. Cruel. Stupid. You think about those kids and you think, I don't really blame them. I blame the stupid ones who put that garbage thought process in their hearts. But what about these religious figures, these leaders who are just standing around the cross jeering Jesus like little kids? It's odd. And not only them, but the Roman soldiers too. The text says that they're taunting him like these little children. They're telling him, oh, you're the king, save yourself. They take out Dai and they start gambling over his clothes. They divide the clothes amongst themselves. Uh, Leif Anderson said it well, that spiritual stupidity is not limited to any ethnic group or class of people. Of course, there was a lot of stupidity around the cross. He's watching all of this take place. And then 
suddenly something really odd happens. The man who is receiving all of this stupidity prays for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, here you have Jesus on the cross, and he's praying for people. He's extending grace to people. He's telling a thief right next to himself that you're going to see me in glory after you breathe your last breath. He's ensuring that his mother will have someone providing for him, her after his death. He's constantly thinking about others. It was pure love in the face of pure stupidity. The Roman centurion also saw some incredible surprises. It says that at the sixth hour, which would have been around 12 noon, so you have to think of the sun being at its peak. It's a bright day. It's normally bright in this uh, climate. Uh, all of a the sudden, the, the sky goes dark, and there's not a natural explanation for this. It's a supernatural explanation. It goes dark, and it remains dark for three hours. Now, this Roman centurion observing all of this is probably drawing some conclusions. It's an ominous sign. There's something really not good happening right now. If you look back in the Old Testament history. He wouldn't have known the biblical history around this. Darkness was often represented as a sign of mourning, cosmic mourning. And you can only imagine that heaven was mourning as the Son of God was being spit upon and, and beaten and hung on a cross. And it's also a sign in the Old Testament of evil, the presence of it. You know, at his arrest, Jesus said this to his captors, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. Believe me, Satan and his demons were standing around the cross and they were cheering. And they were happy. And they were delighted. I think of that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan is being led to the sacrificial altar and the vilest creatures of Narnia are standing around the white witch as she drives the, the, the dagger into the lion's heart and they're celebrating and they're believing that they've won and that they've made progress. But that's not the full story, is it? Because behind the scenes, Jesus was doing serious business on our behalf. Eric read one of the most beautiful verses in all scriptures. He who knew no sin became sin. Your sins and my sins were being poured upon the Son of God in the darkness. It was torment for him. He was languishing on the cross, not just because of the physicality of it, but because of the spiritual nature of it. And the final surprise is while all of this is happening is the manner in which Jesus died. The centurion hears him cry out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, this must have struck him as odd. Remember, he's watched 
hundreds of crucifixions. The normal course of a crucifixion is one of a person progressively losing strength. They, 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 their energy, their ability to hold themselves up, they normally would die actually of asphyxiation because they were exhausted. They couldn't hold themselves up to breathe any longer. So the energy kind of just went down over time progressively, and yet Jesus cries out with his last breath. And, and the cry as we understand from the scriptures, it's not a cry of desperation. It's a cry of victory. It's as if he's saying in this moment, Father, I've completed my task. It's done. And now at my choosing, I'm giving back my spirit. I mean, make no mistake about this on the cross. Jesus chose the precise moment when he would give up his soul. He was in charge. We've been seeing this through this series in Luke, haven't we? Jesus chose the time that he would arrive for the Passover. He's in control of all the events through Holy Week, even on the cross. He chooses the very second instant when he gives up his soul. The centurion has watched hundreds of crucifixions, and he's never watched someone choose the exact second when they're going to die. So here you have this centurion. He's seeing cruelty and stupidity. He is seeing some surprises, some wonders that he's never seen before, which leads him to see something profound in Jesus. Now we come to his statement. You see, in Luke's gospel, he records the centurion saying, certainly this man was innocent. Now, Matthew and Mark record him saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, I want you to understand that he is acknowledging the innocence of Jesus, but he's going deeper than that. He's acknowledging the innocence in Jesus, absolutely. Uh, as you look through the Gospel of Luke, Luke takes pains to prove to us over and over and over again that everything that happened to Jesus in this was an injustice. It was wrong. It shouldn't have happened this way. In fact, as you go back and you look through the story, you think about of his arrest. When does the arrest happen? It happens in the darkness of night. And Jesus, as he's being arrested, he says to his captors, why are you doing it like this? Why are you coming out with clubs and a mob and acting like I'm some kind of armed bandit? I've been in the temple teaching publicly. Why didn't you do it there? And of course, we know that when arrests happen like that, when the crowds are starting to depart, it's because it's not all on the up and up. And then he's taken to Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest, the former high priest. Caiaphas is the high priest now, but they start with the, the man who's really in charge, Anus, and, and Jesus says to him, you're asking me all these questions. You've heard all of my teaching. I'm fully transparent. I've said everything in the broad light of day. A soldier smacks him in the face, and he says, what have I said that's not true? He's brought before Pontius Pilate. You know, in Luke's gospel, Pilate says three times, I don't believe he's guilty. 
In Matthew's gospel, his wife sends him a, a message and says, don't have anything to do with this man. I've suffered in a dream because of him. And yet, the crowd cries for blood. And Pilate plays politics. And even on the cross, there's a thief mocking Jesus, and the other thief rebukes him. And he essentially says, listen, we, we deserve to be up here, but not him. So this centurion's watching all of this, and his remark runs even deeper, though, than just simply he's innocent. If we were to paraphrase him, it would be something like, he was a good man, he was righteous, he's an innocent sufferer, a righteous sufferer. Surely he has a close relationship with God. And, and he probably drew this conclusion because the last cry of Jesus on the cross is a cry of faith and a personal cry. He calls him Father. No one called God Father like Jesus did before him. It's his last statement on the cross. See, what's incredible as we reflect on this tonight, as we come to the Lord's table, we, we stand on the shoulders of witnesses. Someone said to me, well, how can I know that all of this Christianity thing is really true? I wasn't there. And I just say, well, how do you know that Abraham Lincoln was real? You weren't there. You have to go and stand upon the shoulders of the historical record. And guess what? Tonight, we stand upon the shoulders of a centurion who saw it all happen who drew a powerful conclusion that Jesus was innocent and that he must have been from God. Now, I don't suspect that he was a theologian, but he saw, he understood. Now, Luke gives us one more detail that I think is very significant as we approach the table. If you look at verse 45, he says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. I like what Alistair Begg says about this. He says that this was a divine vandalism. <laughs> right in this moment, as Jesus is giving up his spirit, God damages the temple, the place where he resides, the place where people meet with him. And Mark tells us that he tears this curtain from top to bottom. He's sending a signal. See, at the cross, through divine vandalism, God is telling us through Jesus, you now have unfettered access. You have a right to come to this table now. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. I love what the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You can approach this table if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ with boldness. You see, he was the innocent Lamb of God. I love how when you kind of compare it with this 
high priestly role. Jesus is dying right in the moment of Passover. He's the Passover lamb, but he's also the high priest. And the imagery is powerful because as Jesus is approaching the cross, he's the high priest approaching the sacrificial mercy seat without an offering because he was the offering. The innocent lamb of God given for you and me. So let's take our communion elements as we reflect upon this. We begin with the bread. And as we reflect on the bread, of course, we think of the innocent Lamb of God on the cross, giving his body for you and for me. Let's take the bread together and let's eat. And then we take the cup. Scripture tells us that this blood that was shed on our behalf is the blood of the new covenant. And when that temple was, uh, curtain was torn, not only was God saying that you have unfettered access, but he was abolishing the sacrificial system because his son's blood was enough. It's enough. So as we reflect on that, let's take and drink together. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23. He says, we preach Christ crucified. We live in a world today that would like to do away with the cross. We don't want to think about the blood and the gore of the cross. We don't want to think about the fact that the wrath of God needed to be satisfied, that we might be saved. But I'll tell you, church, no cross, no Christianity. No cross, no salvation. No cross, no grace. So let's stand together at this time And let's sing about the cross.